It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing frequencies open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and here's some advice. If you can't spot the Shralk in your first half hour at a Fizzbin table, then you are the Shralk. An adage that is as true now as when I said it on episode 316 with Dr. Steve Molman when we were talking about a piece of the action. That's right. It's our holiday celebration of the last year of enterprising individuals. Yes, Virginia, it really is a clip show. Merry Clipmas. And like any good holiday special, I'll be joined by a cavalcade of stars. Just imagine that they're all conveniently coming to visit me on the same day, uh, sequentially even, at my Yule Log-lit winter cabin, and we're singing Little Drummer Boy or, or whatever. All the highlights you hear on today's show come from previous episodes from the 2018 season of Enterprising Individuals, and if you hear something that you don't remember, you can always check out our back episodes in our show feed or at enterprisingindividuals.com. We know for a fact that Christmas still exists in the world of Star Trek, mostly because of Data playing Scrooge in the holodeck and Captain Picard playing actually Bob Cratchit in that weird Charles Dickens universe that he goes to in Generations. Also, there's like a conspicuous amount of Christmas references in Voyager, like half a dozen times they're talking about Christmas for some reason. Well, anyway, whatever you believe and whichever quadrant of the galaxy you're in, the holiday season is a time to reflect on the year gone by, and that's what we're doing today, so stay tuned. We've also got some interesting news from the real-life world of Trek, and we've got a few stocking stuffers in the way of future announcements for this show, so let's take a page from our supplemental show format and get this thing underway. As we talk about nearly every week on the show, the world of Trek is busier than ever. A Picard show's in development, as well as a rumored Giorgio show, and of course the con miniseries is ready and waiting for approval. And the little show that started it all is still going strong. Star Trek Discovery is scheduled to return to CBS All Access on January 17th of next year, but when it arrives, it'll bring something a little extra with it. William Shatner, OG Captain and Anson Mount, the man playing the man who directly preceded Kirk as Captain of the Enterprise, were both in Ticonderoga, New York last week at the Star Trek original series set tour, and they posed for pictures on the set, and they met with fans, and they signed autographs. Shatner was there to promote his new Christmas album, and Mount was there to plug, of course, his appearance in the upcoming Discovery Season 2. But he also brought a surprise announcement with him. Season 2 was originally planned to be 13 episodes, but would now consist of 14 episodes, an extra bonus one. One. This is a similar situation to the first season of Discovery. Uh, they had announced initially that it was going to be 13 episodes, uh, and they eventually made it into 15. So presumably Mount has first-hand knowledge of this extension as he's part of the cast, and it might be a slight spoiler <laughs> that he makes it to the end of the season, but it's Trek. Who can say? CBS confirmed the extension of the season two with the release of a new trailer and some key art for Discovery. And let's talk this trailer. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you can see it uh, on CBS All Access or on YouTube, of course. How much money does this show actually cost? Because every part of it looks amazing. 
seriously, go watch the new trailer. Come back. Tell me, is this every single bit of action from the new season? Because it is wall to bulkhead packed with people running, stabbing, leaping, exploding. I mean, we've, we've come such a long way from the old time TNG teasers. Remember those? Like with, I think it was Don LaFontaine. And he's like, next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. When the planet Orphanage 2 faces foreclosure... Your cruel, uncaring creatures. Data must learn to dance to compete in a breaking contest. I'm unfamiliar with that term. But when he can't throw down... Let's try it again. And this time, watch my feet. He gets a very special teacher. The line must be drawn here! Captain Picard is my man! We'll return, of course, for the new season of Star Trek Discovery on January 17th with a new episode of Discoverage, our live Discovery recap show. Every Thursday night in 2019, we'll go live just a few minutes after Discovery airs on CBS All Access. I, my co-host Ella Pearson, and a special guest will talk about what happened on the show and what we think will happen in future episodes. And by the way, we haven't been sleeping on the short treks. We've already covered the first three on Discoverage, and the fourth, The Escape Artist, starring Rain Wilson, premieres on January 3rd, and we'll be there to cover it at 9 p.m. Central Time or thereabouts. You can find our previous Discoverage episodes in our show feed if you're still catching up. But hurry, Discovery returns soon, and so does our coverage on Discoverage. Join us. Enough. Let's open our presents that I am re-gifting to you some of the best moments from this year. Let's start it off with a bang. On episode 3-2, I spoke with David R. George III about the brilliant DS9 episode duet. Our discussion on the Cardassians became an exploration of Trek's sometimes shortcomings when using racial metaphor in storytelling. You know, it's interesting. All of this sort of invokes the kind of the best of Star Trek and 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 not the opposite of the best of Star Trek, not the worst of Star Trek, but but a, a sort of a, um, a kind of a catch-22, which you also mentioned earlier, um, in that Star Trek often espouses these these ideas of inclusiveness and not being prejudiced in any way, not not judging an individual uh, by the not not drudging an entire race by one series of traits, and yet what Star Trek does necessarily has to do as a show. I mean, it's introducing alien races all of the time, right? And sometimes recurring alien races like the Romulans and Klingons initially, and and then the Cardassians and Deep Space Nine. They they actually do typically paint the entire race with one brush because they. They have to in order to demonstrate who these people are, to give uh, the, the, the audience a frame of reference. I mean, you know, I, I did do the, the one episode of Voyager. The general rule of thumb in creating a race, the shorthand for it was if you're going to create a new race or new civilization or whatever in Star Trek that we haven't seen before, you can do it with two rooms and four guys. <laughs> right. Right? I mean, that, because there are practical practical um, considerations, you know, there's, there's budget, there's time to make the sets, all this. so you're going you're gonna to write an episode that has a, a new civilization in it, you can show that civilization with two rooms and four guys. Right. But the thing oh. is, so all Klingons are belligerent and all Romulans are <laughs> sneaky, and, yeah. and are the Rom- initially at least, I mean, the, the Klingons sort of metamorphosed into what the Romulans were, right. you know, with the honor and all of that yeah. um, in Next Generation. But, but so, so again, they're creating 
what seemed to be monolithic societies, just as a shorthand for being able to include them and 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 use these particular traits to explore the human condition. Right. So it, it's it's kind of like you say a catch twenty two. It's a weird thing. So. I know that the, you say the Cardassians aren't supposed to stand in for anybody, and that's kind of a good thing, oh, yeah. um, because you can you can then you can use them to to search out you know what you want to talk about from many aspects of humanity, which of course is what all Star Trek is is an exploration of the human condition. <laughs> at least I think that's what it is when it's at its best. Yeah. On episode 3-4, I spoke with author David Mack about the Schizoid Man and how it relates to other data-centric episodes like The Measure of a Man. Measure of a Man is a great episode. And again, that's an interesting one in that it connects back to what we're talking about here with the Schizoid Man mm. in that this is also one of those early episodes that addresses the question of what are data's rights as a sentient being. Yeah. That's one of the arguments that Picard makes once they've determined that it is Ira Graves hijacking Data's body. And Graves is trying to justify what he's done by saying, what does it matter? Data's not human. He's only viewing Data as a machine that emulates human behavior, not as an actual thinking being that deserves to be treated with respect. Yeah. And Picard, even here, is making the argument he is a sentient thinking being and you do not have the right to take his life and steal it for yourself. Yeah. And it's only when this point is finally made to Graves and Graves sees that he's hurt Kareem by mistake because he doesn't know how to control this body, that he's let his anger get away from him and he's you know injured multiple people, uh, including Captain Picard and Chief Engineer LaForge. It's only at that point where he realizes that he has become unhinged, that he's willing to give up Data's body and, and go forward with his original plan. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting that, you know, this is one of those first episodes to raise the notion of is Data capable of possessing a soul despite being synthetic? And the fact that Graves is able to exist in his form uh, but then is nothing more than raw information once he goes into the ship's computer actually supports Data's case. Dr. David A. Banks joined me on episode 3-5 to talk about the Voyager conspiracy and how Voyager attacks typical Trek storytelling from a unique perspective and how Seven of Nine is at the center of that. Voyager tends to be a mixed bag thematically, I think. I mean, in its run, the show's without question, it's proudly feminist. Um, it also touches on complex themes like the nature of identity, um, artificial intelligence, reproductive rights, um, you know, the perils of interfering in other cultures. But I don't think anybody would hold Voyager up as being a real laboratory for social issues. You know, it tends to be seen as the one with the bioneural gel packs and the chick in the bodysuit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm of two minds of this piece. Like, on the one hand, you know, the thing that I always, when people are like, Voyager's really your favorite? Like, why? <laughs> and uh, um, my, my go-to is one, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s and that's just like what i latched onto so like yeah. you know I, I there's a bias there's just an inherent bias there you can't get rid of it the <laughs> other one is that um i i love the the idea that a voyager that you um how do, how do you and to what extent do you maintain the morals of your society absent all of the structures that continually impose that that um uh, those values, right? right so, right. Jane, you know, we, which sometimes comes off as you know, like this really cheese ball, 
scenes where you know Kate Mulgrew is you know having to constantly say over and over again, uh, you know, we are a federation, we are right. you know we're Starfleet, and we don't we don't do that thing or X or Y thing, you know, the easy way out. And so that's why we have to do this really complicated thing. Usually it's an, it's a, a, a story tool to, to explain why are we all doing this really complicated, confusing thing when the obvious answer is just, you know, uh, you know, just go away, right. <laughs> just leave right, you know, right. or something like that. Um, but, but yeah, but then on the other hand, you know, um, Jerry Ryan, Seven of Nine, is on the one hand sort of like uh, obvious, uh, uh, obviously meant to be, be sex appeal, but also, but she's also like this amazing character for to talk about um, uh, uh, neuroatypicality, right? You know, like uh, understanding human emotion. She's sort of a data figure, but but a little bit more social, right? Because with uh, Spock or Data. Uh, the, they like sort of never had a chance to be human, whereas with with Seven of Nine, like there really does seem to be a possibility that she could regain humanity. Right. Uh, and and that I th- I feel like the the um, uh, the outline of the character seems a little bit more dynamic in that way. Like she's allowed to sometimes have emotions, or we're allowed to look through what happens when someone who usually uh, doesn't have emotions or is in some way emotion uh, or psychologically distant from their own emotions, like experiences them and works through them. I, I think that that's, that's always, that's always really fascinating. Pete, the retailer joined me on episode three, seven to talk about the Galileo seven, the amazing gravy of star Trek teamwork and how Trek sometimes resembles the office in space. And the, the director takes pains to get uh, a reaction from uh, the rest of the crew in those uh, scenes. Like you, you push right in on on um, McCoy or on Boma, and they're all given that like this guy kind of look. They're all getting pretty fed up with Spock, right? <laughs> Except for I love that Scotty's just kind of doing his business the whole <laughs> Scotty time. Is, yeah, he's he barely knows where he is. He's in his element. He's just totally like in the zone, and, and right. <laughs> you know, he's kind of also you know I'm sure he's you know practical about it and like would probably be agreeing with Spock most of the time, but nobody gives him a hard time. Right. Until yeah. at some point, Bones does, and then he just gets slapped down. Like Scotty just barks at him, and and uh, and that's that. I said just then back to business. You know, he's like, all right, I'm gonna go back to you know shooting the engine with these phasers. Right. Yeah. Uh, head up his ass, Scotty is your best Scotty. I think uh, <laughs> he's uh, working on the. Uh, they look like Fisher Price <laughs> toys. Oh, they have them all totally. painted like yeah. uh, primary My first colors. Shuttlecraft. Yeah, he's, so he's working on his Fisher-Price shuttlecraft, and he's like, oh, we don't have a lot of fuel. And then later on, it's like, oops, all the fuel's gone. And he's just he's not really reacting emotionally. And then later, it's like, what's that? Electrify the entire thing with some sparkly gloves? I can do that. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's not a factor in this, but definitely the rest of the crew is a factor, the rest of the seven. And that's something that I've always liked um, in Star Trek in general, is that when they they don't focus, you know, we've got our Spock, we've got our um, Kirk and our McCoy, we've got our heroes, but when it focuses on the fact that they ha- they do have to work together as a team and that one person's vision or one person's um, skill or drive isn't going to be the only thing that's going to get them through uh, these situations uh, that are, you know, more than just your everyday sort of problems. Yeah, I mean, and I love it when they do, I mean, I guess it's not, this is probably more in the competency porn kind of thing than the, uh, 
than the you know overcoming your differences to work together angle but the uh i feel like they do that really well in next generation a lot where you'll just have that you know uh you you can mix a couple of different characters together and it, it's this amazing gravy where it's you know like like data and Jordy and either you know like barkley or wesley or something like that just working on a problem around a table in engineering you know and, it, and it's this amazing like like even though they're just talking complete techno babble nonsense like i just get this like ooh, this little thrill of like yeah like they figured it out just like seeing that problem solving in action and and there's a little bit of it in this with with you know, Spock and Scotty just kind of like agreeing on stuff that needs to get done. Right. It's a and, it, it's an adventure show, but it's like a workplace show as well. Right. Yeah. Totally. It's like a weird episode of The Office. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where uh, <laughs> where Dwight gets uh, stabbed by a giant spear. Yeah. Author Andy Weir joined me on episode 311 to talk about Balance of Terror, and he talked about having lunch with Joss Whedon, submarine movies in space, the Cold War parallels in Trek, and the curious logistics of the neutral zone. Balance of Terror, I, I, I was once, if I may name drop a bit, I was once, sure. I was having lunch with um, with uh, Drew Goddard and, um, and Joss Whedon, mm. and they were, and Joss listed off his five favorite submarine movies right okay <laughs> like, so five favorite submarine movies are like you know crimson tide stuff like that but yeah. several of them were not submarine movies like star trek II: the wrath of khan was one of his favorite submarine movies he's saying sure. that that's basically the plot of a submarine movie right yeah and so um balance of terror is, is similar to run silent run deep it's been two very clever uh enemy captains like trying to outsmart each other it was it was just I loved it. I loved the tactical outwitting back and forth. And we got these guys, we got those guys and, and you, and, and empathizable villains, which yeah. is, which was very rare at the time. It used to be in science fiction. I mean, this is like the mid sixties, right? Science fiction used to be the villains are all bug eyed monsters or, you know, <laughs> space Nazis or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, but this one was like, you know, the commander, the Romulan commander, who I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name. Uh, I don't think he's named in the script. Is he? He's just commander? Yeah, oh. just, he's just the commander. Ah, well, I feel better about not. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it was played by the actor who later played Sarek. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was a like a, a dignified man who, like, didn't really like the stuff that he was doing, but he's a soldier and he's obeying orders. And, I mean, S Star Trek is, like definitely has like super heavy handed cold war metaphors all throughout it. Right. And this right. was, this was no different, but um, I don't know. I thought I, I just, there was a lot of unique stuff in there that I had never seen before in science fiction. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that are new to the series in this episode as well. Yeah. Like the Romulans. Yeah, exactly. The neutral zone also <laughs> for that episode. Yeah. In that episode, the neutral zone makes sense. It's basically a no-fly zone, right? It's like a DMZ yeah. between two, you know, empires. But then later on in the Star Trek mythos, the neutral zone just became this magical place where if you go into it, you're at war with the Romulans, right? right. right. And I'm like, well, well, hang on a minute. Like, if you go into it and you get attacked by Romulans, you could say like, okay, you're in the neutral zone too. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, you... that, isn't that just as bad? <laughs> On episode 313, I talked with Robin D. Laws about the conscience of the king, its Shakespearean elements, and how the specter of the Holocaust addressed in the episode was very fresh for the audience of the 1960s. Shakespeare will often feature cross-cutting in his plays between scenes like we're having fun at a party and then suddenly be cut to 
Don John and he's sulking with his henchmen and he's talking about how evil he is. But in this case, you've got Spock trying to work out what's going on with... Right, he sort of become Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, assigned to find out yeah, uh, yeah what's what's up with, uh, with Hamlet. Yeah, and to continue that metaphor, I love that McCoy in this case is pretty much just a Falstaff type. Like, we know that McCoy likes a tipple, but he spends like half the episode just like knocking him back and just kind of uh, throwing insults at uh, Spock. Yes, um, like we say, it's all a little off model. And I guess to get to the the actual meaning and moral consciousness of the episode, I guess the implication is because uh, this is based on Kirk's desire to uh, track down a um, horrible war criminal who uh, sort of exemplifies the idea. Often in Trek, you get the sense that the moment of optimism, the sort of Kennedy-esque Camelot that is reflected in Trek, uh, was uh, the result of a terrible dark age that's just happened. And that's something, of course, that you see uh, in the Khan uh, episode and in, uh, in, in the movie. And uh, you see it again here, where there's uh, a presumably federation governor of a colony who uh, went crazy and uh, succumbed to uh, personal eugenic uh, theories. Right. And, of course, what that evokes is, is the Holocaust. So... Uh, and this uh, is happening on uh, an episode that is just, you know, 21 years after uh, the discovery of Auschwitz and Treblinka. And yeah. it's something that uh, the contemporary audience does not need filled in for them. Yeah. What is really being referred to here. And so we're kind of uh, joking and nitpicking at some of the logic errors in the script. But if the idea is that Kirk has become so obsessive that he is breaking protocol and uh, willing to toy with his girl's heart and cutting out uh, Spock and McCoy in order to sort of be a, a solitary uh, noir hero, uh, just like all the noir does uh, films do, they refer back to the horrors of World War II and about the difficulties of reassimilating back into civilian life after having seen all the darkness. Here you're seeing Kirk, who in this version was part of the Earth forces mm. who showed up uh, to uh, to catch Kodos, uh, whether that's supposed to be the Federation or not, it's it's unclear. There may be <laughs> another service. reference to the fact that, yeah, that things were different, uh, you know, at the beginning of his career. Right. That, uh, that that this is what has sent him on this down this obsessive path is that he, basically Kirk, uh, like uh, you know Mark Hamill at the end of Sam Fuller's uh, The Big Red One, uh, he showed up at Eswich, right? He, he was in Treblinka. He saw the horror of that. He saw all of the bodies. Yeah. And so that this is his, uh, you know, uh, post-genocide stress disorder. The Way of the Warrior was the subject of my discussion with Una McCormick on episode 314, but we detoured into the greatness and cynicism of Blake Seven, how Blake Seven creator Terry Nation was something of an anti-Roddenberry, and how Friday night in college sometimes means a hot date with Trek on VHS. No, it, it, it has a lot that I find really commendable, this sort of sharpness. It's very, very cynical. It's very oh, yeah. bleak. And it was created yeah. by Terry Nation, who I think of as sort of the anti-Roddenberry, um, because yeah. that show, of course, Survivors 2, uh, they're a lot like DS9 in that they have no problem telling incredibly discouraging stories about societies and what societies do to other people. Yeah, Survivors is a really good show, and uh, uh, because it's set in the, you know, it's it, it's set contemporary to transmission. Mm. It it doesn't have that, you know, you're not looking at dodgy special effects in the same. It's a very very good program, Survivors. Mm -hmm. um, 
so there's a there's a really quite dark worldview to to Blake Seven in particular um, that sort of edges into into nihilism in a way, um, and maybe that is yeah, that that's a very British thing, <laughs> <laughs> I think. So I, I don't know whether that doesn't carry as well. You know, there, there's no utopia in um, in Blake Seven. There really no, is. No. At all. There's no salvation, no redemption, apart from the episode called Redemption. Um, <laughs> and um, having been a, a Blake Seven fan from a young age, it must—it's got to be insane that you're now writing big finish scripts for the original actors. Oh my goodness, I—I I cannot tell you how exciting this is. <laughs> I think if um, uh, if you know people listening to this, if they if they imagine uh, a situation where uh, they wrote something and those lines were delivered by William Shatner. Uh, sure, that yeah. that's that's the kind of thing that has happened to be. I've ha- I've had my lines delivered by Paul Darrow, who's the the sort of anti-hero of Blake Seven. Right. Uh, I, I couldn't can't believe my luck. I think of eight-year-old me, and I, I just want to nudge her and go, Do you know, it's all right. You keep on staying at home on a Friday night. I'm <laughs> <laughs> watching those videos because it will pay off and you won't enjoy yourself in those nightclubs anyway. You'll just have a miserable time. <laughs> so stay at home and do all this work and it does pay off. Uh, it really, dream come true. So much fun. Uh, and I'm really lucky to get to do it. That's, so uh, That's amazing. I had writer and producer Eric Stilwell on episode 315 to talk about his Voyager episode Prime Factors. But we took a welcome detour into the talk of his stories about his many years working on the production side of Trek, including working for Harve Bennett, being accused of stealing props from the set of Star Trek V, knowing the salaries of all the cast members on TNG, being accused of stealing scripts, basically all the dangers that come from being a fan of Trek while working on Trek. Well, I've always felt like that's the thing that turns people off if you're too... Um, obsessive as a fan oh, so sure. I knew that that was the thing not to do especially right. since all the Star Trek sets are closed sets you don't want to get caught like sneaking onto the sets Right. Yeah. and there were issues over the years where there were other producers who were far more um, suspicious of people so like um, Harv Bennett and I somehow got off on the wrong foot and there was a point during the years when I was working on Next Generation when they were doing like one of the Star Trek films. I think it was Star Trek Five, and uh-huh. someone actually broke on broke into the studio on the weekend and stole some of the costumes and the captain's chair off the bridge of the Enterprise for Star Trek Five. <laughs> and on Monday morning, because I heard about the report over the weekend, it was in the news. But right. on Monday morning, I came into the office and. Gene Roddenberry's assistant said to me, hey, Eric, um, Harv Bennett's office was calling about you. They were wondering if you still worked here. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Why oh, were no. they looking for me? But they were also asking about Richard Arnold. So basically they were inquiring about all the people who were fans. Okay, who, I see. Who happened to work on the lot. And it was so, like, irritating to me that I immediately <laughs> went over to David Livingston who was our uh, production manager, and I'm like, David, Harv Bennett's office is trying to accuse me of stealing their stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Where am I going to put a captain's chair? (laughs) Yeah. And anyway, David's like, just calm down. Don't worry about it. But the thing was, at the time, people were always coming up to me, like even 
members of the crew, like the prop masters and stuff, and they'd be like, hey, Eric, how much could you get for this phaser out of Star Trek? <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't sell props at Star Trek conventions. <laughs> so there was just a very, um, in the first season of Star Trek Next Generation especially, there was a super, super high sensitivity to um, security sure. of, of the content and the show you know started off you know the first season and the second season were a little bit rocky in terms of not knowing for sure if the show was going to be successful in the long right. run yeah so they were super sensitive like especially Rick Berman about how um, things operated around there and at one point in time I had been approached by Major Barrett Roddenberry to help her out with her Lincoln Enterprises fan club newsletter. Oh, sure, yeah. And so I helped edit like one one issue of her her newsletter with an interview with Denise Crosby and uh, Rick found out about that and like had blew a gasket and was like what are you doing? You can't be doing this. I'm like, but the executive producer's wife asked me to do it. You can't do this. It's a conflict of interest. I'm like, I just don't understand, but I won't do it anymore if that's what you want. So there was always some crazy stuff going on like that, especially during the first year when I was a production assistant. Yeah. Like there was another, I could tell you all these stories. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, please. <laughs> I mean, there was this one time, like the PAs were always being asked to make photocopies of sensitive documents. And so we were always told, you know, be very careful. Like if you're mm. making copies of the budget or whatever, not to throw things into the trash that someone might pick out of the garbage. So I w- was sent off one day to photocopy a budget, and of course the machine jammed, and the pages that I had to pull out of the machine were the pages where they list the uh, the, the salaries of the cast members. Oh boy! <laughs> and I think, well, I can't throw those in the garbage, so I left them in a pile on my desk so that I could go take them to the shredder later. Well, someone found them on the desk and thought I was making copies of, you know, the cast <laughs> sour. I mean, it was like always something crazy like that, right? Right. <laughs> and the craziest thing of all was when I I had been dating this this girl, and occasionally I would have a Star Trek script at home, and uh, it turns out. Uh, we were at a, a convention in Anaheim where a bunch of the um, production members who were fans were all there. Like, so Richard Arnold was there, Mike Akuda was there, and Denise before she was married to him, and a bunch of us were at lunch at this convention. And the girl I was dating was there, and apparently she got into a side conversation with Richard Arnold and had mentioned to him something about. Um, something coming up in a, in an episode that hadn't aired yet. Okay. So he assumed that she, that I had given her this information or that she had seen one of the scripts at my apartment or whatever, and right. he told the producers. 
So then something else happened where uh, a copy of Gene Roddenberry's um, blooper reels had disappeared, and they were trying to figure out who had taken them. And all of this stuff just, like, coincided all at the same time. And so I get called into David Livingston's office, and he's, like, listing off all these things that I've been suspected of being involved in. And I'm just like, I, I swear to God, I all of these things are just, a, like, odd coincidences that I literally did not show anyone a script, did not give out, you know, any of the, And I almost got fired, but he said it would be up to Rick Berman. And then Rick left for the day and never heard anything about it, and it just all went away. <laughs> but I was like a nervous wreck for like days on end. And then I, I I confronted this girl that I was dating about what she had said to Richard Arnold, and she's like, "Oh, this this is this is so stupid because what happened was she was a school bus driver in West LA, and she says to me." David Livingston's son rides my bus to school. And one day he came on the bus with all these Star Trek scripts. And I asked him if I could borrow one. And that's how I knew about that. And I'm Fire like, your son, David. Yeah, Fire but it was son. like after that situation, I was like, I can't even go back and tell him about it because I don't <laughs> even want to bring it up. <laughs> I had to, it was years later before I ever told David about it because I just didn't want to bring up the subject again. And finally, we reported earlier this year on the availability of a very unique real estate property related to the Trek universe. And I wouldn't want you to miss out on it, so listen to this. Are you looking for Euro-style contemporary home living in a house not obliterated by the Husnock? This beautiful home will have you saying... It must be some kind of illusion. This gated Malibu estate was designed by Ellis Gelman and appeared in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Survivors. It features high ceilings, spa-like bath, and ample closet space. Non-functioning phaser rifles included, but you won't need that. You've got the planet all to yourselves. Enjoy two acres of lavender and rose garden, bamboo flooring, an abundance of natural light, and a chef-inspired kitchen with a double oven and beautiful emerald stone countertops that'll have you saying, Good tea. Nice house. Hello, I'm Kevin Uxbridge. You don't understand the scope of this deal. This isn't just the best house in Malibu, or in California, or on the planet Earth. It's the best of them all. All houses everywhere. Our four beds, and 3.5 baths, and 10 car parking with detached guest unit worth $6 million. There is no law for how good a deal this is. Closing costs covered, if you're not a hooshnock. What a great collection of guests and a great year on the show. And this this didn't even include the many fascinating discussions I had with authors, fans, and experts on our supplemental shows about Star Trek and the real-life issues that Trek explores. 
All of our shows from this season and seasons past are available in our show feed or at enterprisingindividuals.com. We also post them on our Facebook page. And speaking of Facebook, we'd love it if you'd join us on Facebook in our Star Trek discussion group, Enterprising Interlocutions, where we go a little deeper into the episodes and topics discussed on the show. Go to Facebook and search for Enterprising Interlocutions or Enterprising Individuals and follow us today. And look us up on Twitter at at EISTPOD. Be part of the conversation. If you've enjoyed this year of Enterprising Individuals, why not consider going all the way, becoming a crew member of the show? You can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And crew members receive even more content, like my DS9 rewatch recaps, live episodes, like our episode with Melinda Snodgrass about Measure of a Man. We've got episode commentaries and more. Just go to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod to join the show. I hope you're nearly done with your holiday shopping. If you're not, I can absolutely sympathize. If you're shopping on Amazon, consider clicking through our Amazon banner at enterprisingindividuals.com or use the Amazon links that we provide in our show notes. When you click through to Amazon using our banner or links, a percentage of anything you purchase on Amazon comes back to us at no extra cost to you, and that little bit helps keep the warp core lit here. It's a great way to support the show doing something you're already doing, shopping on Amazon. You can also bookmark our banner so you can reach Amazon in one click and support the show all at the same time. And if you're stumped for gifty ideas, why not hit up our TeePublic store at tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash just enough trope. That's our parent network. We've got Trek-themed shirts featuring original designs and art by comic artist Andrew Blakeborough. There's posters, stickers, phone cases, and more, and there's a holiday promotion running right now. Everything on our store is 30% off. So get Trek swag for yourself and friends and family, and you can help support this show. And as always, anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. So that's our show and our season for 2018. As your captain, I'd like to say what an ongoing pleasure it has been serving with you. I'm continually amazed by the caliber of people that want to talk to me about my favorite series. And I'm humbled by the support and the positive feedback that I get from you, the audience. I do this for you, and I can do it because of you. And we're going to keep sailing right into 2019. The show's going on a short break as we get ready for season four coming up next year. And it's already shaping up to be Another great year for the show. We've got returning guests. We've got plenty of new guests. We've got new episodes of Trek to talk about and new worlds to discover. And I'll be giving sneak peeks to our crew members on patreon.com forward slash EIST pod of what's in store for next year. We don't have a firm return date just yet, but stay tuned for updates. We plan to be back in late January, maybe, maybe early February, depending on how things shake out. But fear not, we are not going totally radio silent. We will return, of course, with more Discovery coverage on Discoverage, our Discovery recap show. We're covering the last short trek on January 3rd, and we'll be back when Discovery Season 2 starts on January 17th with our live recaps every Thursday, new night, Thursday nights. So join Ella and I as we explore Season 2 of Star Trek Discovery. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at EIST Pod to get notifications about when we're going live with Discoverage, and also keep in touch with us while the show's on leave. Keep that channel open so you don't miss a thing. Well, that's it for Season 3. I'm dimming the warp core to low power, I'm switching my Android off, and I'm going to get my saddle. I hope nobody tries to die hard the ship while we're in dry dock. Thanks again for joining me, and thanks again so much for your support, and a very happy holidays to you and yours, however you celebrate the season. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.